One, obviously, one book, one chapter. We've been talking about uh, how Jude is continuing to point out error that is going on with false teachers in his time that are already creeping into the church unaware. And uh, he's helping the church identify who these men are by what they're doing to the congregation and what they're doing in the congregation. Uh, these are going to be things that would have been more readily seen um, than some other things that he's pointed out so far. So these are kind of the easy three, if you will, as we go through the study to kind of pick out as he summarizes what these, the intent or what the outcome of these men really is or these people. So he's going to point out three more tactics that come from false teachers. So let's read verses 16, 17, 18, and 19 together here real quick. And, uh, I'm not going to dig into this all the way because of our time this morning, because some of you are already sweating bullets. I can see it's like, does he know what time it is? I do. It works today. Um, whether or not I pay attention to it, that's a different story. But um, the book of Jude is one that I think is, and I've shared this with you, is very apropos to our day. And as we get closer and closer to the end times, the Bible tells us there's going to be more and more what kind of teachers? False teachers. And we as the modern church need to understand what the characteristics of these people are. So let's look at this again. These are grumblers, malcontents, following their own sinful desires. That they are loudmouth boasters. Man, nobody knows about that in our time, do they? Do you ever hear people like that? Showing favoritism to gain advantage? That doesn't happen in our culture, does it? But you must remember, beloved... The predictions of the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. What are those predictions? They said to you, in the last time there will be what? Say it out loud. And they will follow their own what? Are we seeing that in our time? It is these who cause, say it together. What kind of people? And what are they devoid of? It's interesting. This is happening in Jude's time. Remember, Jude's writing to believers. This is this has happened in first century church. So how much more are we seeing this today? But you must remember. But you must remember. Remember, he's he he's re repeated that phrase a couple times, hasn't he? Remember, I want to write to you concerning the common salvation that we have together, but instead I'm writing to you as one to contend for the faith. And he says, and I know you know these things, but I'm going to share with them again. And he say, it causes us to remember. He talks about Korah. He talks about all the rebellions. He talks about um, Cain and Abel. He talks about um, Balaam and his donkey. And he talks about all these stories, Sodom and Gomorrah, and all the things that we already know from the Old Testament. He causes us to remember. And now verse 17, he pulls us back again. He says, but you must remember, beloved, the predictions of the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. He says, remember, I want, to, I want to write to you concerning our salvation, but instead I'm asking you to contend for the faith, and I want you to remember what the apostles told us. Towards the end times, there's going to be scoffers. There's going to be false teachers. There's going to be those who come in and try to mess up, if you will, God's work. And you know what? We see it in our time, don't we? 
let's look at, uh, at what are the three traits or characteristics of these people. Really, I'm just going to give them quickly. They're right here in the text. We don't really have to play with it at all. We don't have to do anything disingenuous with the text to find out what it says. He lists it straight for us. Look, first of all, at verse 16. He says in verse 16, these are grumblers, malcontents, following their own sinful desires. These are people who complain. Aren't you glad there's no complaining in church today? There are no complainers. There's nobody who, who grumbles. There's no talking behind the scenes. Everything's done out in the open because everybody's honest and, and they all have the best interests of the church today, right? Jude had it in the first century. What do you think we got today? If it was at the beginning of the church, well, where's the church today? So, Jude says, watch for people that are complainers and fault finders. It's interesting the word he uses here to talk about people who complain against God and complain against others. It's not so much a loud, stirring complaint that everybody hears, but it's an undertone murmuring. It's a gossip. It's a passive-aggressive is what the word here. Let me show you what it looks like in the Septuagint in the Old Testament. Should we look at that? Let's go there. Proverbs 26 and verse 21. Check out what it says. As charcoal to hot embers and wood to fire, let's read the rest of the verse together. So is a quarrelsome man for kindling strife. The word quarrelsome there, same word. Somebody who talks undertone, somebody who is passive aggressive, somebody who is murmuring, they're grumbling. They are like charcoal to hot embers. What does charcoal do with hot embers? Burns hotter, right? When your fire, your barbecue gets low, I know most of you cook with gas these days, but for you old holdouts with charcoal, how do you get charcoal hotter? Fan the flame, add more charcoal, right? Get those embers hotter so they ignite more charcoal, more charcoal lit, the hotter the fire gets. What does wood do to fire? Feeds it. More wood, bigger fire, right? I love when we were cleaning out the bottom of our property. We had, we had three massive piles of brush, and we dumped fuel on those that wood, and then we light this. We put this trail out, and we light it, and it go, whoo, the whole pile would jump off the ground. That's when you know you use too much. That's when you use three piles to accomplish the same job as one big pile. And the whole ground shakes and the concussion wave hits. And then you want the fire to get bigger, so what do you keep doing? You look around for more wood to throw on the fire. Why not? And you know what's going on in the church during Jude's time? The grumbling, the complaining, the murmuring is growing inside the church. And Jude is telling us, Watch out for this. The word quarrelsome means to continually find fault. These are people who are never satisfied. They go and look for others who are never satisfied. And all the unsatisfied people get together and be unsatisfied together. Just like the days of Korah. Remember, he says, remember these things. Remember these characteristics. Just like it was in the day of Korah, so is it now in the church. 
And now remember, as you get, as you get closer to the end times, you're going to see this even more. What does the Bible have to say about this idea of complaining? Well, Philippians 2.14, right? It says this, do all things without grumbling, same word, or disputing. Romans 16 and verse 17, I appeal to you brothers to watch out for those who cause division and create obstacles contrary to the doctrine that you have been taught. What's he say emphatically? Avoid them. Don't even, don't even engage it. Avoid it. How about James 5, 9? Do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing where? Standing at the door. 1 Peter 4 and verse 9, show hospitality to one another without what? Man, I don't know why I got to... You know what? God knows those tongues. He knows the thoughts and intents of your what? So when we grumble, it's just the outward of what's already happened inside. When we complain, it's the outward of what's already happened inside. And the Lord knows what? The thoughts and intents of our heart. So complaining, he points out, or we pointed out last week, that we must be discriminating when it comes to doctrine. Biblical clarity is a necessity. But if it if the gripes and the complaints have to do with some sort of legalism or personal preferences, then keep it quiet. Keep it to yourself. Whose preference is more important, Jesus or yours? Whose mission is more important, yours or Jesus? Whose word is more important, God's word or your word? And when we keep it in proper perspective, we understand. Now, does that mean we can never speak up? We can never say something? No, you do things decently in what? In order. God's provided ways to deal with confrontation. He provided ways with confronting people. He provided ways that you can sit down and have a conversation and agree to disagree even on things. But it doesn't mean that we break the church apart or we, or we divide the church in such a way that now the church can no longer even accomplish the mission by which it was created to do. So guard against complaints leading to gossip. We're not suggesting that you keep it all inside. We're not saying that we're going to belittle you if your feelings come out. But with the kingdom agenda in mind, there are some things that just need to be sacrificed for the cause. Do you know our church doesn't do everything I think we should do? Imagine that. So you're in good company when the church doesn't do what you think it should do. But what if we were the ones that God was calling to start to do that which it's not doing? Because who's the church? We collectively are the church. The pastor's not a church. You by yourself are not the church. But it is the local called out ones in a specific area that become the church. And when they gather together, the church is gathered. And when we're apart, the church is scattered doing the work of the ministry. So... The Bible, by the way, shares with us laments, even within it. How about Psalm 73? You want to know how to complain? Look at Psalm 73. Take all your complaints and place them where? The feet of Jesus Christ. If he answers your prayer, people will change. If he doesn't answer your prayer, then guess who needs to change? Right? That's why we pray for others, right? That's why we pray for God to give us discernment. So complaining, he says the second trait is they're manipulators. 
They try to manipulate people to get what they want. It says, verse 16 again, these grumblers, malcontents, following their own sinful desires, they are loudmouth boasters showing favoritism to gain advantage. Jesus says that these men speak arrogantly, flattering people so that they could take advantage of them. They're boasting proudly about who they are and not who Christ is. They make it about them rather than making it about him. Whose church is this? It's God's church. Who died for the church and bought it with their blood? Jesus did. It's his church. It should be about him. These are men who preach themselves and not the word of God. They see glory rather than giving Christ the glory. And the ministry is ultimately about them and everything revolves around them because they are the center of ministry rather than Christ being the center. They're interested in gaining converts to themselves, not converts to Jesus Christ. This shows the malicious intent of the false teachers too because they know exactly what they're doing and they're doing it intentionally. He knows the weak points of people and they exploit them with their own desires. This behavior is hypocritical at best. At worst, it's flat out evil. Let's see some passages of Scripture that go with this. 2 Corinthians chapter 4 and verse 5. For what we proclaim is not, say it together, we don't proclaim ourselves, but Jesus Christ is Lord with ourselves as your servants for whose sake? All of us here today are here because of the sake of Jesus Christ. We're for the sake of Jesus, nothing else. If it's anything more, then we're robbing God of his glory. We're, We're stealing the ministry of Christ. Check this one out about Lot's daughters and what they did to get what they wanted. Genesis chapter 19 and verse 33. So they made their father drink wine that night and the firstborn went in and laid with her father and he did not know when she laid or when she arose. And then we know the very next night, what does the other daughter do? Same thing. Because they had to make sure that there was an heir because God obviously is not capable of doing that. So we're going to help God out. And we're going to do our own thing in our own way, not God's way, and get the result that we want rather than what God actually intended. They manipulate God's will. They manipulate God's work. 2 Samuel 11, 13, look at this. And David invited him and he ate and in his presence and drank and he made him drunk. And in the evening he went out to lie on the couch with the servants of his Lord, but he did not go down to his house. Remember when David tried to get Uriah drunk and tried to get him to go home and be with his wife and not remember what happened, to try to cover up that sin, and what happened? Didn't work. Uriah didn't play right. He didn't do what David was trying to manipulate him to do to cover his sin. So we see that even some of the greatest people of God are able to manipulate others. How much more so unbelievers? How much more so those that proclaim to be pastors but really don't pastor? They're going to manipulate people even worse. Their particular manipulation in the passage here is flattery, but there are many other forms that people use to get their own way. Anger, whining, silence, money, sex, food. These are all simply ways to get people to do what you want them to do, not necessarily what God wants them to do. Most of the time, it's a control issue. 
based in absolute selfishness. By the way, one of the sins that we're most prone to doing is being selfish. Think about this. Who do you love more than yourself? God already knew that, didn't he? He already knew you were going to love yourself. So what's he say? The greatest commandment, love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your mind, all your soul, and love your neighbor as you would love. What's he assuming there? There's a love for you. He already knows. There are times when we definitely should influence others towards godly ends. I'm not saying we should never do that. But we should not do it in a way in which we manipulate people to get what we benefit from. If God benefits from it, glory to God, amen? amen. If I share the gospel and somebody gets saved, amen, let it be. But if I manipulate somebody to pray a prayer and get them to say something they don't believe and then go around and tell everybody I saved somebody, Number one, I've never saved anybody in my life, spiritually speaking. Never will either. Guess who does the saving? Holy Spirit does. This teaches us that the means are just as important as the ends. We must use godly, righteous means to achieve kingdom ends. The, the means do matter. The ends matter as well. So we must remember that we don't follow men, we follow Christ. That leads me into point number three. Look at verse 19. It is these who cause divisions, worldly people, devoid of the Spirit. Jude says these men are divisive within the body of Christ. They create factions and distinctions within the body of Christ that separate rather than unify. By the way, division always hurts the kingdom. Always hurts the mission of the church. Division always does. Think about your own household. If there's a divorce, did that make your family better or worse? Think about when, when you're in a team and half the team doesn't show up for the game. Does that make the team better or worse? When you have factions within a church, the focus will be on the internal, the internal, not the external. When there's problems in a church, they begin to become self-indulged rather than mission-minded. Jude gives the reason. He says that these men are soulish or sensual. Basically, he calls these men of natural, uh, that they're natural, they're of the soul. Meaning they're not saved. They're not spiritual. They're not regenerated. These are people who can talk the talk, but they can't walk the walk. Man, how many, how many did we see during COVID? Freak out! Thinking that somehow they can add one day to their life by some means of man. When the reality is, your days are numbered by who? God. Now, we don't go jumping off cliffs to see if God's going to save us. I mean, Jesus was tempted that way, was he not? They go up to the top of the pinnacle of the temple and Satan himself says what? Jump off of here and let the angels save you. Could God do that? Sure, why not? What are the odds of him doing that for you? Well, the Bible says it is appointed unto man once to die. We don't presume on God's grace, but we live because of God's grace, don't we? We don't presume on God that you have to do this, but we depend on God for him to do things in our lives, do we not? 
when we share the gospel, we don't go in saying, God, I know you're going to save this one. You, get, you have to because I asked for it. But how many times when you share the gospel does somebody actually believe? And God honors what you ask for. You have not because you ask not. Or you ask for the wrong things. We ask amiss. Look at 1 Corinthians 1, verses 12 and 13. <laughs> Do we not see this in our time? I want to, I'm going to read the verse the way I think modern day we'd read this, okay? What I mean is that each one of you says, I'm of MacArthur. Or, I'm of Olstein. I'm of Clefalo Dollar. Or I'm of Christ. Now, I adjust a little bit because some of these are, are not right teachers, right? All the ones listed in our verse are what? They're godly teachers. So what I did there was kind of disingenuous because it's not the same thing. But I did that for the point. There are some that we know are not great teachers of the gospel. They're not accurate teachers of the Bible. And we need to mark those. But there are some. I like MacArthur. I'm not a MacArthurite, though. I'm a follower of Christ. What happens when you follow man? Man's always going to let you down. What happens when man fails? What happens when man messes up? All of a sudden, now you're in despair because who do you follow now? But if you're following Christ, who's never going to mess up? Who's the source anyway? If you're going to follow me or follow Jesus, follow Jesus, please and thank you. Right? Because I'm going to mess up. I'm not going to get it all right. I don't know everything. I'm not omniscient. Guess who is? Guess who wrote the book? Would you rather have the author or the Cliff Notes? It depends if you're taking the test, right? But what if I gave you the option of Cliff Notes or having the author sit next to you as you take the test? Which would you rather have? I'd rather have the author sitting next to me as I take a test about a book because if I don't know something, what can I ask? The one who wrote it. I have all the inside information now. The verse goes on to say, Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? The answer is what? No. You were baptized in the name of Christ. You were, who, who died for you? Christ. So be careful in following men. They will fail you, then what? Jesus will never leave you. He will never fail you. Check out Titus chapter 3, verses 9 through 11. But avoid foolish controversies. <laughs> genealogies, dissensions, quarrels about the law. For they are, let's say it together, unprofitable and... That sounds... We should put some time in that. Look at verse 10. For a person who stirs up division after warning him once and then twice have nothing more to do with him, knowing that such a person is... I like the word here. What is he? Warped. And sinful, self-condemned. Romans goes on to say this about in chapter 16, verses 17 and 18. I appeal to you brothers to watch out for those who cause division and create obstacles. Contrary to the doctrine that you have been taught, avoid them. Stay away from them. For such persons do not serve the Lord Christ, but they serve their own appetites. And how do they do it? Isn't it interesting? Paul and Jude are saying the same thing. They, they do it by smooth talk and flattery. They deceive the hearts of who? 
Don't be naive. Be a student of the Word of God. Be in the Word of God. Understand that when somebody says, I got a word from the Lord, that they didn't get it out of their Bible, guess where they got it from? Because God's not revelating things anymore. He's given us the completed word of Scripture. And it's been good for the last 2,000 years, so why do we need a new word today? Now, can God speak to us through his word? Yeah. How'd you know you were supposed to go to Annapolis? God said it in an audible voice. No. She told you how she knew. God closed this door and opened this one. And he shut this one and he opened this one. And then he kind of repackaged it all for her in a different way that allows her now to go not only do what she wants, but do it for whose glory? The glory of God. Now that sounds like something God would do, doesn't it? Versus, I prayed, I asked God for it, he gave it to me, and he has to give me anything I ever asked for. And if I have enough faith, and I believe enough, and I give enough, and I do enough, blah, 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 whatever it is, then, then God somehow is obligated to serve me. You know what the problem with that is? God's in the wrong spot. I don't think God is obligated by anything I do, but I am completely obligated by what he's already done. And that's the difference between religion and what the Bible teaches. Religion says God is, God is up here on the mountain and somehow I've got to climb the mountain and figure out how to get to God. But what the Bible teaches is this. God wants a relationship with us and because he's king of the mountain, he sent his son down the mountain to where we are showed us how to live, and then went and prepared the place for us and gave us the ability to get there. And how do we get there? Not by our own works, but by what he's already done for us. This is what Jude is saying. Understand the time that you're living in. Understand that if you're living in the last days, the deceivers are going to be even stronger than they are in my day, Jude says. But you already know this, he appeals. He says, you already know this. Look back again at verse 17. But you must remember, you already know this, that as we get closer to the end times, these things are going to happen. And they're going to happen in more frequency, and they're going to happen with more ferocity. So let's summarize this pretty easy. When do we separate? Unless one is making division over a point of theological integrity, division is a sin. True or false statement? Unless we're separating over theology, doctrine, division is a sin. That's a true statement according to Jude. Jude is saying, don't get caught up in the frivolous things. Don't get caught up in the nuances of what your opinion or their opinion. But when it comes to doctrine, that's when we separate and doctrine matters. And what is the one thing churches want to get rid of today? Isn't it interesting? The one thing that is the purity of the church is the one thing they want gone. Get it out. We don't need doctrine. We all just need to love Jesus. Does Jesus love everybody? Should everybody love Jesus? Do they? Are we all just going to go to heaven because Jesus died on a cross? No. Doctrine matters. That's why we study doctrine. That's why we study to show ourselves approved unto God. Let's, let's make it clear. Where Scripture is clear, be clear. Where Scripture is not, choose your positions and battles carefully. 
There are some things that I will die on that mountain and I will stand there and I'll defend it until I'm with Jesus or Jesus comes to me. There are other things, I'll be honest, I don't give a rip. I really don't give a rip. Did Adam have a belly button? Do I give a care if he had one or not? I really don't. I, I, I'll be honest, I don't. You want to argue with me? That's great, but you're not going to win me over and I'm not going to win you over. So what's the point? When we get to heaven, we'll find out we're all wrong. You know what? Where scripture is clear, we got to be clear. We got to stand. We got to hold the line. But in areas of preference, personal opinion, stuff like that, it's great to have them. It's great to have your convictions. It's great to hold your line that God has given to you. But because God gave it to you doesn't mean it applies to everybody else. Did God give Samson some limits that nobody else had? Sure. Did he have to live up to him? Sure. Was he held accountable? Sure. If you make a vow to God that you're going to do something, are you going to live up to it? Hopefully. Be careful about where we draw our lines. Not only that, but look at, the, look at this. Remember, too, that the church is not about us. It's not about our preferences. It's not about our concerns. It's about who? Christ. It's about his mission. It's about what he wants. It's about what this book says. This is what's going to matter. In the end, when you stand before God and you say, well, Jesus, I felt like your word said this. Guess what he's going to say? That's not what it said. It says what I said, and I mean what I said, right? Well, I just didn't think sin was so bad. So if I don't sin, then grace doesn't happen, right? I mean, come on, Jesus. I don't think anybody's going to argue those before him, do you? I think when we see Jesus Christ... We're going to be like Isaiah. What did Isaiah do when he saw Jesus in Isaiah 6? He fell on his face. He confessed his sin immediately without any prompting. And then he confessed the sin of his nation and all the people. When was the last time you confessed America's sin before God in a conversation with him? That's what Isaiah did when he saw. <laughs> Problem is, who did he see? He didn't even see Jesus. Who did he see? He saw an angel. He bowed down to the angel and began to do this. And the angel's like, whoa, 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 whoa. No, 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 no. Worship God. Worship God. Every time we see angels confronted with worship, they always deflect it to God, don't they? It's about the kingdom. It's about the advance to all the nations. And the goal is only attainable through unity. You know what? She's never going to get the support to do the mission she's going to do if the churches don't unite behind her and unite behind the ministry to get her there. You know, churches could say, well, we don't support the Navy. We support the Air Force only. So if you were going to the Air Force, then we don't support you. You know, sorry. Sorry about your luck. Wrong church. You know what? We see a common mission. We see a biblical mission. We see a desired godly outcome. As a church, we support that. That's the mission we want to be about. Bringing Jesus Christ to the lost. We are more efficient, we are more effective when we are a united church. When God's church is united, not just locally, but regionally. We don't see this in America much anymore. Church is working together, and we need to be working together. That's why when Pastor Claypool called, what I say? I don't even know who that is. No way, man. No. You say, you know what? Really? 
Cool, let's do something. Let's work together. Let's get her where God needs her to be, where God wants her to be. And if, if God's in it, what's going to happen? It's going to happen. 90% in a couple months is better than most missionaries I know are doing. I know your amount's smaller, but still, it's a full year salary, isn't it? That you, that you raised from May until now. That tells me God's in it. How much do you have left? What do you need? So $6,000? Am I doing my math? Where's my math people? Is that right? 5 times 12? 60? 600? 6,000? See, I can't do it in my head. $6,000. 500 a month for 12 months. Am I right? I got it? Good. So she's $6,000 short of the goal. Can God do that in a week? Sure he can. Are we going to proclaim right now that God's going to do it and name it in the name of Jesus? I don't think so. But you know what we do? We have not because we... So we ask the Lord to provide through his church. We don't proclaim it. We don't name it. We don't say, God, you're obligated. But God, if it's your will for her to be in that place, then use us in the way that you will to help meet that need. Does that mean all 6,000 come out of our church? I don't know. Doesn't mean it can't. Doesn't mean it will. But you know what? We're just another piece in the pie, aren't we? Working together for the cause of Jesus Christ, to further the ministry. None of us will go to Annapolis, Maryland and get on that campus. But God's going to put her on that campus to represent everybody here. That's how, that's how missions works. That's what Jude says works. When we work together, we can do so much more than we can do individually. So when false teachers are there, mark them, understand what they're like. They complain, they murmur, they cause division. Don't engage it. Get away from it, push it away, confront it in a godly way, and move forward in unity for Jesus Christ and his glory. Amen? Amen. So if you hear some complaining, murmuring, stuff like that, passive-aggressive stuff, you know what? Confront it, but do it with love. Just say, you know what? I'm not engaging. I'm going to do the work of the ministry for the glory of God. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your word. I thank you that your son... Jesus Christ died for the church. I thank you that it was the blood as that was sung earlier. It was the blood and we thank you for the blood that was shed because without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness, no remission of sin. And Father, it was the perfect blood of Jesus Christ that was shed on the cross of Calvary that gives any of us the ability to even be in the family of God. And if it wasn't for your grace and your mercy in calling us while we were still in the act of sinning against you, you sent your son Jesus to die for us. And Father, because of that vicarious substitution that took place, because Jesus died in our place, we now too can become adopted into the family of God by means of Jesus Christ. It is the work of Jesus Christ that saves us. It's not our works of righteousness, which we have done, but it's according to his works of righteousness, which he has already done, that we can be saved. And Father, I pray this morning, if there's somebody here in the auditorium that doesn't know you as Savior, that today would be the day of salvation, that they would ask somebody around them, either that brought them or that they're sitting nearby, that they would ask somebody around them of the hope that's within them with meekness and fear, how they can know that they can be a part of the family of God. The Bible says these are written that you might know, and it is knowable, and we do understand what it means to be saved, and we know that it is possible to know what it means to be saved. 
And Father, I know there are some teachers out there today who, who teach that you can't know and you can only hope so. But your word, Father, says these are written that you might know that you have eternal life. And Father, I pray that we would be confident in this area of salvation, that we wouldn't be doubting it, that we wouldn't think that we're losing it or anything like that, but that we would know that we're in your family or we're not. And Father, I pray that if we find ourselves not in your family, that Father, we would get that settled once and for all from your scripture. Father, for those who are here and who are saved, I pray that we'd be doing the work in the ministry that you've called us to do. And that is sharing the common salvation that's in us. But Father, in light of preaching on that, you've been wanting us to contend for the faith. And Father, as our sister here is, is here today, wanting to go contend for the faith in Annapolis and the in the front lines of the Naval Academy, Lord, we know that our military people need the gospel today. The young generation of people is coming up that didn't grow up in church. They didn't go to church. They haven't been part of church. And somebody needs to take the gospel to them. And Father, we pray that for Samantha and the ministry that you have in front of her. And I pray, Lord, that you would bring in that last 500 a month that needs to come in for her to be able to be fully supported and be able to go to Annapolis to do the work here in just a few weeks that you've called her to do. So, Father, thank you for the reminder today of missions. Thank you for the reminder today of the false teachers and to be out there contending earnestly for the faith that you gave your life for. In your name we pray. All God's people said. Let's stand together. We're going to sing a closing song above all. And uh, there is an offering plate in the back if you'd like to give to Samantha and the ministry that she's going to be going out to. Uh, that offering plate there is there in the back for you to uh, take part there. And again, if you came and you said, oh, I wasn't ready for that, there is that piece of paper in the back that has her picture on it. You can pray for her. And on there is giving information as well uh, that you can give towards her ministry that God's called her to. So I'm going to have Samantha head for the table in the back there. That way after the service is over, uh, she'll already be back there. But uh, let's sing this song as number one, an invitation for the Lord to do the work in our life that he has for us this week. And then number two, that we would be ambassadors of Jesus Christ and taking the gospel out to those and that we would earnestly contend for the faith in the time that we live. Because are we living towards the end times? Absolutely. So let's contend for the faith as as the Bible admonishes us to do. Let's sing together.
rejected.